Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Brussels, Belgium, to discuss multi-center randomized clinical trials in critical care. Okay, great. Um, could you please introduce yourself? My name is Jean-Louis Vincent, Vincent. I am a professor of uh, critical care medicine at the University of Brussels, and uh, I work in the Department of Intensive Care of the Erasmus University Hospital, Erasmus Hospital, if you like, in Brussels, which is the hospital of our university. I am a past president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and a past president of the World Federation of Intensive and Critical Care Societies. So I have been an intensivist for uh, more than 30 years. Perfect. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. Today we'll be discussing your paper that was published in the December 2019 uh, issue of Critical Care Medicine entitled, Which Multicenter Randomized Control Trials in Critical Care Medicine have shown reduced mortality, uh, a systematic review. For the benefit of our ATS community, I'll briefly summarize the publication. The systematic review enrolled all adult multi-center randomized controlled trials that evaluated the effects of any intervention or monitoring system in critically ill patients and reported mortality as a primary or secondary outcome. A total of 212s met their inclusion criteria, 27 or 13%, reported a significant reduction in mortality, 16 or 7%, an increase in mortality, and 170 or 80%, no difference in mortality. Let's go and speak with Professor Jean-Louis Vassant about these findings. So maybe we could start by uh, you providing us with the study rationale for performing uh, the systematic review. The rationale is very simple. We often hear that this or that has not been shown to reduce mortality rate. Don't do this, or I'm skeptical about that. It has never been shown to decrease mortality. This has been uh, discussed for many new pharmacological interventions, for monitoring system, think at the swan guns catheter, for modes of mechanical ventilation, for almost actually almost anything in our field. So we wanted to turn the things around and ask, after all, what are the large prospective randomized control trials that have shown that something decreases mortality? Tell me. And so from there, we realized that we have a small list of uh, interventions that could reduce mortality, but some of them were actually criticized, challenged, and the results were even reversed by subsequent uh, RCT, randomized control trials. Uh, the notorious example would be activated protein C in, uh, in sepsis. Uh, the drug was even on the market. It was called Xygris. 
uh, we showed uh, that uh, it could decrease mortality rate in uh, in sepsis, uh, but uh, it was too too good to be true. So some people wanted to have another placebo-controlled trial, and this trial was conducted very quickly, and it was totally uh, negative. So the drug was taken out of the market. But um, the other example would be paralysis in severe RDS. There was a study by Papazian et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine a number of years ago showing a decreased mortality rate in severe RDS, probably because patients cannot hurt themselves by a, a desynchronized mechanical ventilation, by a poor adaptation to the mechanical ventilator. And recently, the Petal Rose study from the U.S., published in the New England Journal of Medicine six months ago, showed just the opposite. There was no difference in uh, survival rate with uh, routine paralysis in severe RDS. No difference. And, of course, more uh, ICU-acquired weakness, more neuromyopathy in patients who received the, um, the muscle relaxants. It doesn't mean that we should abandon the muscle, the muscle relaxants. It means that we need to individualize these therapies. And so uh, going on and on and on and reviewing the entire literature, we basically found that the only studies which have really shown a decrease in mortality rate are in the field of uh, um, mechanical ventilation or, or no mechanical ventilation. It's iatrogenicity, basically, in that if you can avoid uh, endotracheal intubation to start mechanical ventilation in patients with hypercapnic respiratory failure, usually, typically, the uh, decompensated COPD patient, um, avoiding invasive mechanical ventilation but using non-invasive mechanical ventilation has shown to decrease mortality rates. And, of course, the most famous study is the one from the U.S., from the ARDS network, showing that a large tidal volume in ARDS could be harmful and increase mortality rates. Now, we know now that this is not uh, limited to ARDS, and we should always avoid a large tidal volume during mechanical ventilation because uh, Futier and collaborators in France showed in the New England Journal of Medicine quite some time ago now that even during surgery, the use of large tidal volumes could be associated with more complications. So uh, the point is that these only studies showing a reduction in mortality rates uh, are about iatrogenicity, basically, how we could reduce iatrogenicity. The other one that could perhaps be discussed, but it's the study on prone ventilation in severe RDS. It was conducted by a group of French investigators. It's a multicentric French study whose results also appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it showed that there was a lower mortality rate in patients who, with severe RDS who were kept in prone position for most of the time. 
But the results have been challenged, saying, well, these people, they know exactly how to prone. They have the uh, experience uh, and the uh, savoir-faire to uh, put patients in prone position, but this may not be the same everywhere. And I know some American ICUs where they do not apply it routinely because they are concerned about potentially harmful effects of prone positioning in ARDS. The patient may extubate himself or the lines may go out or whatever. I mean, there are a number of possible complications. But if you think about it, Prone positioning in severe ILS is also a way to potentially reduce the iatrogenic effect of mechanical ventilation. And so um, it's also, uh, to some extent, related to the iatrogenic effect of what we do. So very little things have been shown to reduce mortality in critically ill patients, and we should keep it in mind not to argue that we have not made progress. We have made lots of progress. We are much better almost every year. We are making progress, but it's not necessarily by prospective randomized control trials targeting mortality. So uh, we need to be, uh, well, I can keep the implications for later if you like. I don't know if you want me to pose or go on. <laughs> Oh sure. Um, so I think you definitely highlight the uh, this important notion that uh, a lot of the damage that has been done in critical illness might be might be iatrogenic, and that we're basically reversing that effect with the, these new so-called new interventions. I do want to go back briefly for the benefit of well, our well, audience. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yes, and no, because no, I don't agree. Um, I, I, I mentioned some very specific studies about uh, endotracheal intubation and large tidal volumes that we could avoid whenever we can. But uh, for many other things, the prospective randomized control trials targeting mortality showed no difference, but uh, not, necessarily, not necessarily harm. Uh, you know, the, 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 the most notorious example is about blood transfusions. People use the argument that blood transfusions have not been shown to reduce mortality, to reduce their blood transfusions. But I think that we are reaching a point where people underuse blood transfusions, undertransfuse now, because there is such uh, 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 an attempt to avoid blood transfusions that I can see everywhere patients remain profoundly anemic in ICUs and are very weak and they cannot be mobilized. And so it's not just the mortality that we should look at. We should look at morbidity. We should look at the quality of life, etc., as endpoints. That's a very important message. And so we should not Again, turn the things around and say that if it has not been shown to decrease mortality rate, it means that it doesn't work. Don't forget that the largest study on ECMO, the EOLIA study published in the New England Journal recently, showed no significant difference in mortality. So be careful. We don't want to throw away extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in severe RDS. That can save lives. So we should actually take some distance and uh, look at it 
uh, with the wide spectrum and say, wait a minute, it's not because a study is negative that the intervention should be abundant. And I think that's a very important message of all this. Oh, I definitely agree. So in your there's a systematic review, you reviewed 212 RCTs, of which 80% showed either no benefit to no harm, 13% showed benefits, and 7% showed harm. So let's unpack those 80% uh, that you're talking about that show either no benefit or harm, and people seem to think that we shouldn't be performing them because they're so-called negative trials. Some have argued, as you've said, that uh, maybe mortality isn't the right outcome. Some have said that the population groups are too heterogeneous, and maybe it's subgroups within those populations that would benefit from mortality. And others have said, well, let's look at different endpoints. And you've mentioned a few like morbidity, um, quality of life. How do you think we reconcile uh, the fact that uh, up to about 80% of the RCTs that we're doing show uh, no benefit, no harm, and should we be pursuing uh, future RCTs, multi-sensor RCTs? Oh, yeah, we should we should continue uh, multicentric RCTs, no doubt about it, and uh, it remains the best way to address a, a question because it's the, the the only way to have a clean um, evaluation of a strategy that's by a prospective randomized controlled trial. But as you alluded to, there are two difficulties. One is the heterogeneity of the patient population, and the other one is the mortality as an endpoint. If I start with the latter, mortality as an endpoint may not be adequate because mortality, after all, is influenced by many elements. We tend to believe mortality is good because, of course, it's patient-centered, uh, obviously, and uh, it cannot be, it's undisputable. It's, uh, it can be measured quite easily. But if we think about it, and there are many data showing this, mortality is influenced by the past history of the patient, uh, the age, of course, uh, the severity of the acute disease, the complications, but also the patient preferences. And we all know that sometimes we decide to give up with some patients because they could survive, but the family members come to us and say, you know, my father or my mother would not have wanted this. And, you know, the kidneys are still failing. And so there would be prolonged iterative dialysis and he or she would not have uh, accepted that. So, okay, we give up. We ask for another patient Exactly with the same condition, the family members would say, yeah, 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 he or she wanted to live, even if it was without kidney, no, no, no. And so, you know, patients' preferences do influence it. So there are many factors influencing mortality. And so sometimes you think that by inserting a swan gun scatter or by giving a bit more transfusions or by giving more albumin, do you really think that you will influence that? I think it's naive. And uh, it's even worse when you go to the one of the 
um, worst trials that I know, uh, randomizing patients with septic shock for a higher or a lower blood pressure level. Of course, there is no difference in mortality rate because there are some patients who would be better off with a higher blood pressure and some others would be just fine with a lower blood pressure. And this brings me the second element, which is the heterogeneity. It's already the good uh, illustration of the problem of heterogeneity of the patient populations. We all know that the blood pressure level should be individualized. In the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, we wrote that the doses of vasopressors should be titrated to a clinical endpoint. So some patients with a history of arterial hypertension or with underlying atherosclerosis may need a higher blood pressure than others who are younger without any atherosclerotic disease. So instead of just looking at the age and the past history, we need to look at the patient when the patient is in shock. And we all know that the blood pressure level can be uh, can influence the urine output, the degree of perfusion of the organs, etc. So we need to individualize these decisions. And um, just saying that we have, you know, 1,000 patients with uh, sepsis or septic shock, even more specifically, that may not be the right answer. Look at corticosteroids in septic shock. The Australian study was negative in terms of survival. There was no significant difference in survival. And they said, okay, corticosteroids in septic shock, no, not, no, no, no real patient benefit. But when you look at the paper, one half of the, pa the patients were really in septic shock. The other half had only tiny doses of noradrenaline, norepinephrine, and may not have needed that. You don't know about the mean lactate levels at the onset of the study, at time of enrollment in the study. You don't know the SOFA scores at time of enrollment in the study. So this really is, uh, is a study whose results are difficult to interpret. At the same time, as you know, there was a study from France uh, published in the same issue of uh, the New England Journal, uh, by Anand and collaborators showing that in real septic shock, mortality rate 40%, SOFA score quite high, mean lactate level 4 milliequivalent per liter, very high lactate levels, the, there was a difference in mortality. There was a significant reduction in mortality rate with the corticosteroid. So that can explain the differences between the two, are you speaking about septic shock or are you speaking just about sepsis where corticosteroids are not really expected to decrease mortality? Now, hopefully the Australians just published last week a, uh, a second analysis of their database. It's published in anesthesiology where they looked at patients having really septic shock. Yeah. Patients having a, a lactate level above two and having all the criteria of septic shock. Now, the numbers decreased substantially, but there was a, a, an almost statistically significant difference in survival with a p-value of 0 0.08. Okay, I think it was very good of them to make that additional analysis and be uh, ready to publish uh, this data. 
because now it shows that their observations are really uh, in agreement with the observations of the Anand study on, on severe septic shock. So um, you see, by trying to enroll a large number of patients, you may enroll patients who should not be enrolled because it's quite clear from the beginning, from the time of enrollment, they would, that they would either die in some cases, but more commonly, they would survive. And that's the major issue with the studies on early goal-directed therapy. The multicentric studies from Australia, from the US, from the UK, there are three large prospective randomized control trials showing no difference in mortality rate when you apply early goal-directed therapy as it was suggested by Rivers and collaborators initially. However, in the three large trials, the patients were not very sick. They were already resuscitated. They had a CVO2, which was already normal at 70 to 73% at time of enrollment in the study. Some people, some patients did not go to the ICU. Give me a break. That's not really a, a, a severe form of, of, of sepsis. So even though you have three large randomized control trials, it does not bring a definitive answer. I had a phone conversation with uh, the uh, with the editor in chief of the New England Journal, Jeff Drazen. At that time, he was telling me, Jean Louis, now you know we can say that early goal directed therapy doesn't work. And I said, no, that's not true, Jeff. It could be that in some cases it may be helpful. So I wrote a piece in uh, Chest recently saying that we could move from early goal directed therapy to later SCVO2 checks. But SCVO2 remains an important variable in septic shock. So how can we have a more homogeneous patient population? It's not only severity, it could be something else. And that's how, uh, you know, we tried with thrombomodulin, which is a substance uh, capable of influencing the microcirculation on arterial cell function, uh, coagulopathy. We enrolled only patients with a coagulopathy in that trial, and we published the data a few months ago in the JAMA. And uh, there was a, a signal, not enough to have a new product on the market, but at least there is a signal that in patients with severe coagulopathy, thrombomodulin seems to decrease mortality rate. But that's what we should have done with activated protein C that I mentioned earlier in, uh, in, in septic shock because we need to have a marker. We need to have a particular thing we can measure. With activated protein C, there was only this possible notion that a high Apache 2 score would be a clue as patients with a high Apache 2 score were more likely to benefit from activated protein C than the other patients. But uh, Apache 2 score, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of mixture. It does not have a pathophysiologic basis. Whereas the coagulopathy to give a substance that influences the coagulation, that makes sense. So that's that's, I think, the reasonable approach. You want to eliminate endotoxin with an extracorporeal circuit, measure endotoxin levels before you start. 
you, you want to give some vitamin, vitamin D to your patient, measure the vitamin D levels and see where they are. Don't give vitamin D to patients who do not need it. Isn't it how we do with, uh, with potassium when we give potassium chloride in our solutions? And, you know, and, and then some, some people want to do a prospective randomized control trial on uh, saline solutions versus a balanced solution being Ringer's lactate or Hartmann solution. And look at the mortality. But we know that the problem with sodium chloride solutions, 0.9% saline, that's the chloride load. And we know what it's bad. It's hyperchloremia. So why don't we simply avoid hyperchloremia instead of doing a prospective randomized control trial to show that saline solutions can harm patients when its administration results in hyperchloremia? But we know it from the beginning. Why do we have to kill some patients with a lot of sodium chloride to show that hyperchloremia is harmful? No. We don't need that. We should not do that. Uh, it will be again to try to show harm. I would love to see more studies demonstrating benefit. Benefit with a new therapeutic intervention, with a new uh, uh, pharmacological intervention. But the industry, the big pharma, doesn't want to hear about critical care medicine any longer because all our trials are negative and they are afraid to come with their new molecule in our field. They are too afraid that we will uh, have a, a negative study and the drug will not go on the market. So we need to be clever and we need to select the right uh, biomarker uh, to characterize the patient who will go into the trial, and then we are much more likely to find a difference in uh, survival or any other outcome. Yes, yeah, so with regards to that, the biomarkers, they're using a biomarker to enroll patients. One of the um, arguments that some uh, researchers have raised is um, it's really, really difficult to enroll patients into critical care trials. If we use a biomarker that only selects out 10, 20 30% of patients, uh, they won't, it'll either take uh, a long time to enroll the patients or uh, the study will be prohibitively expensive or they'll have to enroll maybe 30, 40, 50 sites. So how do you get around that where you're not able to enroll all the patients because only some of the patients have the uh, necessary biomarker? That's absolutely a very important question. But if you go for a large patient population without biomarker, your chances of having a negative study are so high that you will just kill your project. So at least you can try to better define your patient population, and this increases your chances to have a positive study and to find that something works. Now, of course, you cannot enroll uh, a few patients uh, per month and, uh, and have to wait for 10 years <laughs> before uh, you can get a sufficient uh, population. That's a big issue with the thrombomodulin study that I indicated to have 800 patients enrolled. It took us several years and uh, and regularly the drug company wanted to you know push 
and, and enlarge the enrollment criteria. And I said, no, don't do that because you may lose your signal. And that's how we could keep a, uh, an important signal. And now we will hopefully uh, go on and, uh, and do a second trial of, uh, with about the same number of patients and hopefully find a uh, therapeutic which uh, is shown to, to work. Um, so we, we need to find a compromise, of course. We are not looking for the very rare uh, subset of patients because uh, it would take too long to have the trial completed. But think at what they do in the field of cancer. Uh, that's exactly what they do. They would not take all patients with breast cancer in their trial. They will look for a specific uh, marker in a broad sense. It could be a cellular marker, a receptor, okay? But that's how they select their patient population, and that's how they have made progress, and we call it precision medicine. In the field of critical care medicine, we are far away from precision medicine, admittedly. But at least, as I wrote in the, in the Lancet uh, two years ago now, maybe, uh, if it's not precision medicine, it could be personalized medicine, but that's much better than poorly defined patient populations. So I refer to the three Ps in this editorial uh, poorly defined patient populations, personalized medicine, and precision medicine. One day, hopefully, we will go into precision medicine in clinical care medicine, but we are not there yet. Some people speak about precision medicine, but we are not there. Uh, you, you can dream about it, but it's not for today. It will be for, the, for tomorrow. But we need to move up in this scale or in this pyramid and, and move up to better define patient populations, and from there, hopefully, to precision medicine. So one of the big advantages that oncology have in their research field is time. When they take a biopsy, they get a couple of days where they can process the specimens and come up with a very clear indication as to what type of tumor it is and what kind of therapy they can administer. In the critical care field, due to the fact that it's uh, intensive care, we're talking about minutes, sometimes hours, to um, determine what kind of population group we have, what kind of therapies we're going to administer. So how do we get around that? Um, well, how do we get personalized and precision care in the critical care setting when we just have minutes and hours to work with? Sure. Well, there are actually two hurdles. One is that, that it takes a while to have the, uh, uh, the results back. But the second problem is that in, uh, in septic patients, it can change with time. Whereas in the cancer field, uh, the receptors remain the same. You have a specific cell line that you can characterize and that you can target. Uh, and that cell line will remain the same, whereas, whereas in sepsis, it's not the case. So initially, there may be a rather pro-inflammatory response. And by the time you get your results back, uh, the patient is already in an anti-inflammatory environment and your strategy should no longer be the same. That's how it will be easier to uh, target the patient who are in, a, in the secondary phase of uh, relative immunosuppression because some of these patients can remain with a relative acquired immunosuppression for several days, and you could have the opportunity to intervene if the patient develops uh, particular 
uh, infections which are characteristic of the immunocompromised individual. We published in The Lancet an important case report of a patient who had mucormycosis and was about to die from mucormycosis, and she was totally immunosuppressed following a major trauma and previous infections and septic shock. And we ultimately gave an anti-PD-1 to stimulate the immunity and interferon gamma to stimulate the immunity, and that patient went over that crisis. And, and clearly, we saved her life with an immunostimulating strategy. So that's the best example of how we could really uh, influence this very complex process. Now, it's much more difficult to intervene in the first phase when there is, in septic shock, a very impressive pro-inflammatory response. But perhaps that's the good time to give corticosteroids to try to decrease the, uh, the pro-inflammatory response and at the same time to improve homeostasis because there may be a relative adrenal immunosuppression. So the cortisol levels may not be that low, but they may not be appropriate. So we could argue the same thing with vasopressin. Vasopressin perhaps should be given very early, but only in hyperkinetic phase in patients with high calac outputs. And this could perhaps limit the um, duodema formation. So um, that's a vasopressin story is another story. Uh, but the, the, uh, the, the overall concept is that we need with our treatments to look at the right patient profile. So how do we determine the right patient profile, especially in patients with sepsis? And the big argument is, what is time zero? Um, some patients are sick for a couple of days before they come to the hospital. Some Correct. present the same day, and some uh, develop their infections in the hospital. And we seem to be analyzing them or enrolling them at different times, but assuming that time zero is the same for all of them. Um, how are we going to get around that hurdle? This time zero issue seems to be a big problem that uh, doesn't seem to have a solution at present. No, 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 no. That's uh, that's that's correct. Uh, you what, what you say is true. Now we need to separate two things. One is the intervention uh, targeting the host response. And the other one is uh, starting the appropriate therapy, uh, because targeting the appropriate uh, no uh, starting the appropriate therapy uh, starts at time zero when we see the patient for the first time, usually in the emergency department, but it could be on the floor, and so that's all the questions are of. Uh, appropriate timing of antibiotic therapy, of early fluid administration, early vasopressor administration, etc. So that's one particular uh, type of question. We should not waste time when we evaluate the patient. But it's a slightly different question to see what could be the best timing to start a treatment to optimize the host response. And, um, and, and there, we need to have a, 
cytokine profile or a mediator profile. And if there is a lot of IL-10, for instance, which is an anti-inflammatory marker, and little TNF, uh, tumor necrosis factor in the blood, that could be a clue in favor of an immunosuppressive uh, environment. Uh, whereas if there is a lot of interleukin-6, a lot of TNF, a lot of C-reactive protein, CRP, that would be in favor of a pro-inflammatory uh, environment. So that's how we, we, we need to, uh, to look at it. Now, it's not only you know, anti-cytokine therapies that we should look at. Uh, clearly, um, perhaps we could, uh, we could influence adenosine metabolism. There are new therapeutic interventions that may target that. We still have alkaline phosphatase around as a molecule that could perhaps protect the kidneys and improve organ function. There are some other strategies which are not based only on the pro versus anti-inflammatory response of the host. There are so many okay. things we could test, really. There are so many strategies that we could test. I agree. So in your last, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, you've had over 30 years of experience in critical care. Maybe you could share with us some of the biggest surprises uh, that you've had uh, with the way critical care has changed. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, when you think about it, we have not made much progress in terms of new pharmacological agents. You could mention uh, you know, dexmedetomidine as a new sedative agent, but the place of dexmedetomidine is relatively limited. We have rather learned that we should use minimal sedation and no sedation when we can. You could mention levosimendan as a new inotropic agent, but it's not even available in the U.S. Its place is very limited for only severe heart failure, uh, and it is an inodilator. It has some vasodilating properties and a long half-life, so it's not easy to use that. So what else? Well, the rest, of course, we have new antibiotics, and, and new antifungal agents, etc. but that's not only for critical care medicine. And as I mentioned earlier, there was only one sepsis agent or one ICU agent and that was activated protein C. That was Xyges. It's the only drug that uh, that was used only in the intensive care unit, and the prescription had to be signed by a properly trained intensivist. That's the only one. Now, we have made great progress, great progress with our hemodynamic monitoring, uh, uh, with all forms of monitoring, uh, by improving the technology, by being less invasive, uh, by adding some new measurements. I'm thinking at neuromonitoring, the brain, oxygen tension, the, the PBO2, uh, perhaps the use of near-infrared spectroscopy, etc. There are many new things that we have developed, and yet they have not been shown to decrease mortality in prospective randomized controlled trials. Not at all. 
On the opposite, intracranial pressure monitoring has been tested in prospective randomized controlled trials. It was shown not to decrease mortality. And yet, we want to measure ICP in patients with severe brain trauma. No doubt about this because it helps you to guide your therapy. So, uh, we, we have made great progress. Uh, without these big trials being positive. And on the other hand, we have made great progress by improving the process of care. Our rounds are much better conducted now than in the past. We have a team approach which is much better organized than in the past. And so our nurses are better than in the past. Our physiotherapists are better. And we all pay more attention to a number of things that we may have forgotten in the past. We have checklists. We have ways to remind each other about the various elements, exactly as the pilot and the co-pilot can help each other in the cockpit. So we have made great progress and the studies, like the ones I, I, I signed recently on outcomes of uh, critical care medicine in Europe 10 years apart, we, we published it in critical care medicine recently, uh, it's clear that we have uh, the same mortality rate, basically, but we have sicker patients, older patients, and with a, high severity, a higher severity score than in the past. So we can have uh, similar results but with uh, sicker patient populations. And I, didn't, I wouldn't like to see mortality rates to go down in ICUs because then it would no longer be ICUs. Right now, around the globe, it's roughly 15%, 15% mortality rate. In the U.S., it could be a bit below that because you have more ICU beds than in many other places in the world. If you go to Italy where, or Greece, where the number of ICU beds is very limited, and there are many other parts of the globe where it's the same indeed, they may have mortality rates of 25% because they do not have enough ICU beds so that, um, you know, there is a concentration effect. <laughs> you do not have less sick patients in your ICU, so you keep the patients who have a high High risk of, uh, of dying and you do not have a number of patients who are there for monitoring and prevention of complications. So um, the, the, the mortality rates in the ICU should not necessarily go down substantially, but we hope to uh, treat increasingly sick patients and uh, help uh, more uh, very uh, critically ill patients in the future. Definitely, and with the number of cancer therapies that are coming out, we should expect uh, some unexpected uh, patient profiles. I want to go back to the question, to yep. the issue that you made about the um, how rounds have changed from maybe 30 years ago to now. And we have a lot of uh, young members, uh, residents, or fellows who are probably not aware of how rounds were conducted back in the day. So maybe you could just describe how they were back then and how it differs from today. The main difference in my mind is that in the past they were either not conducted, indeed, in many ICUs people were just uh, transmitting information to the, uh, to the doctors arriving in the ICU, uh, or they were conducted at the bedside but they were boring. 
and uh, it was primarily the most experienced person or the, the head of the department uh, whom could be called the boss who was saying, okay, yeah, stop antibiotics here, start antibiotics there. And they were not really discussing the various issues. So what we have learned is a more pathophysiologic approach and a, a, a better discussion where indeed uh, the person leading the rounds would tell us what the arguments could be in favor of this and against this. This being antibiotic therapy, being transfusions, being albumin administration, etc., or corticosteroids in septic shock, if you like, uh, or higher people, or lower people level in the ALS, etc., etc. Because for each particular question, there are pro and cons aspects, and we need to discuss those uh, at the bedside. And so, in our department here, I can tell you. The residents love rounds. They love when the rounds start because they know that we will have these discussions and they will learn something. And at the end of the rounds, I like to ask them, what did you learn today during rounds? And if the answer is, uh, oh, many things, many things, that's wrong. Then the rounds were not well conducted. But if the resident or the fellow remembers this and that specific aspect, that's very good then they have really learned something. And really, the doctors love it because uh, if you don't like it, you should not go in critical care medicine. Uh, you know, they, they like to treat critically ill patients and have these discussions. It's not just protocolized care. Protocolized care is boring, and then doctors leave the ICU because everything is in the computer. Do what uh, you can find in the computer. Or you can deviate if it's absolutely necessary, but otherwise, everything is protocolized here. Oh, I wouldn't like to work in such a unit. It's so much better to discuss the aspects and with the nurses, with the physiotherapist, should we move the patient out of bed? Yes, no, why yes, why no, etc. And uh, that's really what what we like, and that brings the humane aspect of uh, of our treatment. So, um, and and that's the the uh, the inquiries have shown that that's what the doctors like. So if we do that, we have more people interested in critical care medicine. In our department here, we have too many applicants. We have too many people want to become intensivists in our university. So, and we have people from abroad. They come from Italy. They come from Brazil and other places. And of course, these are the best ones who come here. And they would like to be trained by us because they like the way we proceed. And, uh, and to me, that's really critical care medicine. The rounds where everybody is uh, behind a computer screen, uh, watching the computer, the x-rays, the lab results, and not even looking at the patient, to me, that's suboptimal. Or if it's just a dialogue between the physician in charge and the physician who has seen the patient, if it's just a dialogue, to me, it's not good. Everybody should be geared. Everybody should be participating in the discussion. So when I lead the, the rounds, I like to make sure that everybody un understands what we are speaking about and that everybody is willing to contribute, to speak, to bring his little stone to the house 
that's how we can uh, have the best care for our patients. But I think people are improving, as uh, as we just spoke about. People are improving the way they conduct medical rounds uh, at the bedside. And I repeat that the rounds should be perhaps not fun, but uh, they, 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 they should be uh, very pleasant. We should oh, really like to make rounds. Yeah. I agree, and having that collaborative approach is really important. Uh, Professor Vassar, as we uh, uh, go towards the end of this podcast, I just want to turn your attention to the future. How do you think critical care will be in maybe 15, 20 years? What will our current fellows and junior uh, clinicians have to look forward to? Um, what do you think that they should work on? How should they improve to make sure that they're ready to deliver critical care uh, in 2030, 2040, 2050? Uh, yeah, I have a, a talk on the future ICU that I will, that I, that I give regularly and, and that I will give again tomorrow. Uh, the, uh, there is a lot to say, but in the future, uh, we will improve in a number of ways. I think we will have better monitoring systems, uh, allowing us to better assess what we do. You know, we have all these discussions about how much fluid should the patient receive, and there are still some people who want to go by formula and say, oh, you need to give at least this or that in one hour, in two hours. But that's ridiculous because the fluid requirements of every single patient are different from the requirements of the next patient. So we cannot do without monitoring things. That's what I have understood in anesthesia as well, in the operating room. You cannot go by formula either. You need to individualize your therapy. So for this, we will have better hemodynamic systems. We will have better ways to monitor the brain, better ways to monitor the kidney, etc., cetera, et cetera. The other aspect is the therapeutic aspects. I'm sure that we will develop new drugs that will be particularly uh, focused on the critically ill patient, and we will measure what we do. I mentioned the vitamins. Uh, I could go back to the glutamines. And the glutamine, nobody speaks about glutamine any longer. A number of years ago, people wanted to give glutamine to everybody, and then the uh, large prospective randomized control trial showed no reduction in mortality, so no glutamine. But give me a break. There are some patients who may benefit from glutamine. We just need to know how to interpret the glutamine levels uh, in, in, in the patients and better characterize the patients who may benefit from it. So that, that's how we will really manage our patients. We will measure a number of things and, uh, and give the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And this will be a team effort. We will have better interactions between the various uh, team members. In terms of number of beds, in many parts of the globe, there will be more ICU beds, not so much in the U.S. because you already have uh, uh, many ICU beds. And as we know now, there is a tendency even to close down some uh, some beds, um, okay, but uh, but globally there may be an increased number of ICU beds. Now, some people even propose that some 
regular hospital beds could be transformed into ICU beds because, after all, you may not need so many uh, bulky pieces of equipment. Uh, even the <laughs> the ECMO is no longer a big a big machine. It's uh, much smaller today than it was in the past. So. Um, uh, you could actually keep the patient in the same room, but of course have a different team taking care of uh, of the patients uh, on on the regular floors. We may use more extracorporeal systems in the future, uh, and we may replace in part mechanical ventilation by extracorporeal gas exchangers, not only ECMO, it could be extracorporeal CO2 removal as well. If you couple that with renal replacement therapy, in the future we will have better systems for liver support, we will have have personalized parenteral nutrition, and uh, we may have uh, cardiac assistance, uh, and all of this can represent what we called ECOS in the JAMA uh, last year now, ECOS for extracorporeal organ support. So we could have various forms of extracorporeal support and uh, the the renal replacement therapy could actually be uh, complemented by antitoxin removal, excessive mediators removal in the early phase of septic shock, for instance. So we will combine uh, various uh, forms of extracorporeal uh, support. So these are some of the elements. Of course, telemedicine will change our world, uh, not so much by uh, keeping doctors in charge Uh, out of the ICU, although it may be an application, of course, but it's also a way to have better consultations, to have better opinions of uh, specialists. The neurosurgeon would not look only at the CT scan in the distance, but could really interact with us and discuss the various aspects of patient management as if they were at the bedside. The same thing for the pediatricians, if you have only a few kids in your in your ICU or uh, the um, the surgeon who wants to look at his or her patient from outside uh, you will use telemedicine to have uh, expert advisors uh, if you want to have a dermatologist's opinion you could have it right away by sending the images by telemedicine to the dermatologist. You don't need to wait for the dermatologist to come maybe two hours later. So um, uh, there are so many things that will, uh, that will change. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, I predict a wonderful future for critical care medicine. Oh, that's definitely exciting and looking forward to it. Um, as we uh, finish up, I just wanted to check with you uh, if there was anything in the podcast that we haven't covered yet that you had prepared for that you felt that our audience should definitely know or benefit from. No, I think you conducted it very well. And uh, no, I think we covered a lot actually in this uh, oh, little hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you yeah. very much, uh, Jean-Louis. I had a great time chatting with you and I'm sure that our audience are going to uh, really enjoy listening to this podcast. A big thank you to Professor Jean-Louis Vassant and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.